0: Hey, y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the insurrection at the Capitol, one year later. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. In this episode, we're going to talk about January 6th, 2021.
1: My panelists on today's show, they can recall that day vividly. We would get, you know, flashes of a few images from the Senate floor where people had The mob had taken over. That is NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach.
2: People breaking into windows, looking for any way in.
0: And that's Washington Post national security reporter Hannah Alam. Hannah's a former NPR reporter, and she was at the Capitol that day for NPR.
2: People threatening to haul out and string up, you know, lawmakers.
0: Tom and Hannah have been covering the insurrection and its aftermath for the last year. And one big thing has stood out for both of them.
2: It was just so much more violent um, than we were able to see from our little sort of corners of observation that day. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol.
0: This week in a speech, President Biden called out former President Trump for his role in what happened. But Trump, even now, is downplaying the attack and supporting the insurrectionist. And all across the country, there is still no real nationwide consensus over what actually happened that day. Despite all of the reporting around the insurrection and all of the new information that's come to light since... So this episode, Hannah, Tom, and I, we're going to talk about why this violent attack on the U.S. Capitol is still so polarizing, and what that day's violence and the lack of consensus means for our politics going forward. You know, Tom, you and the investigations team have been tracking the legal fallout for those involved in the insurrection. A year later, writ large, what has happened to them? How many have been charged? How many have gone to jail?
1: Yeah. So the FBI calls this their biggest investigation in the history of the Bureau. It involves almost every FBI field office in the entire country, because that's where people came from who went to the riot. Um, They came from virtually every state in the country. And so far, they've charged a little over 700 people. The charges I kind of organize into three general buckets. There's people on the low end who are accused of basically going inside the Capitol, breaching the building, but not actually committing violence or breaking windows, doing any property destruction. That's on the lowest end. Mm -hmm. And then there's a quarter of all the charges so far are people who are accused of attacking police officers, whether with weapons or with their hands, makeshift weapons, that kind of thing. And then there's this group of people who are accused of conspiracy, planning in the weeks, months ahead of January 6th to bring this level of chaos and destruction to the Capitol, that they thought about bringing weapons that they, in the allegations against the Oath Keepers, for example, this far right militia group, they're accused of planning a quick reaction force that would be able to come to the Capitol at a moment's notice with heavy weapons and attack. Um, They've pleaded not guilty, so that hasn't been tested in court yet. But those are the kind of main groups of charges, We've started to get some guilty pleas in those cases. More than 170 people have pleaded guilty so far. Less than half of those have have been sentenced yet. And I should note that those are the cases that are mostly on the lower end. The most high-profile cases, the most serious charges have largely not finished their way through the legal process yet.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to talk to you both about what has changed in the last year In terms of how law enforcement prepares uh, for these kind of events or the potential of things like an insurrection, what I found most interesting um, from your reporting, Hannah, was that in the run up to January 6th, federal officials already knew something was going on, but some were actually afraid to have too strong of a show of force because of some things that Donald Trump had done while he was in office. They were reluctant to use force again after he had months before, you know, used the military to quash racial justice protests outside of the White House. Can you talk about what law enforcement did or didn't do that day and why and how, if at all, any of that has changed in the last year?
2: I I think that point is actually one of the big unanswered questions or that we're still answering is, you know... For all of the open planning that went into this event, I, I remember, you know, talking on NPR that morning, saying, you know, this feels less like a, a protest and more like mm-hmm. a last stand um, by Trump supporters because that had been the open rhetoric of groups that were going to the Capitol, people who were going to be there. This planning was out in the open, and yet the Capitol was left a soft target. And I don't know that we've fully answered why. There's been theories that, that such as you know the failure of imagination these were not uh, this is not a population that we've traditionally thought of as a domestic terrorist threat. Um, th- then you hear, have people saying, well, you know this was an administration that was known and is well documented that they didn't like you to bring up mm-hmm. threats from the right and the far right, and there have been whistleblowers from Homeland Security and other agencies saying they were discouraged from shedding light on that kind of threat from, you know, naming it even in some cases. And then we're also still watching the responses to it. Like you said, what's changed in the year? Um, Certainly these groups have been more under the microscope. I mean, I talked to several guys who are in militia groups, self-styled militia groups, They every week have a story about, oh, this new guy showed up. I think he's a Fed or, you know, we've been deplatformed and we don't even have, you know, a way of communicating. And so, I mean, you do see that there is an impact. But at the same time, they're just adapting and organizing in different ways now. Mm. Yeah,
1: I totally agree with Hannah about the questions surrounding why the Capitol was so unguarded that day. I talked actually with one guy who entered the Capitol that day. He's pleaded guilty. Um, he's going to be sentenced later this month. But he himself was shocked that he was able to make it inside. He didn't understand wow. why the Capitol felt like it was so unguarded and he could just essentially waltz in. And I I did not – he asked me why, what I thought and I didn't have a good answer for him for why he was able to do that. Um so I think there's still a lot yeah. of questions about just how law enforcement and you know the Congress, which oversees the Capitol police, failed so miserably to actually protect the Capitol. Yeah. So
0: Hannah, you wrote this great piece about how different the law is treating these mostly white insurrectionists compared to the way it treats other people who are labeled as terrorists. Particularly Muslims who have been targeted with terrorism allegations for decades now. How are members of that community responding to the insurrectionists?
2: Thanks. Yeah, you know it. That story came from just watching group chats I was in and and Muslim, you know, forums. Really? Yeah, because you know people were saying, "Can you believe? Can you see? Oh, look, he's got an SSS screening uh, mark on his." boarding pass. Oh, it's the end of the world. You know, wait a minute, that's our, Mm. you know, Muslims are saying that's up in our reality post 9-11. And we weren't accused of storming the Capitol in in a violent manner, you know? Mm. And, you know, so they have seen, they've pointed out these disparities. The Capitol rioters will get less time in prison than um, Muslim defendants who were in material support cases. Those are support, you know, supporting terrorist groups in various ways. And oftentimes there was no actual violence involved. It was, you know, looking, Mm -hmm. buying plane tickets, sending money or, you know, to help fighters overseas, things like that where they weren't accused of, you know, killing someone, for example. In many cases, they didn't even travel over to the battlefield. So, you know, it's hard for people who saw those cases and saw people locked away for, you know, 20, 30 or more years, now, watching people who were caught on video, who indeed bragged about what they did, who took selfies, you know, just kind of knowing that they're not going to get that same time.
0: Yeah. Where do Americans writ large stand on all of this one year later? From the start, it seemed that there would never be a real national consensus on what happened that day and why and who was wrong and who was right. But have those divisions over the insurrection and all that it symbolizes have they grown larger or smaller in the past year?
2: To me, I mean, just from reporting on this, uh, kind of following that those sentiments and those forces that drove people to the Capitol, trying to see where did that energy go? Who's harnessing it now? It's led to sort of grassroots level embracing of this. I think if there's any story, mm-hmm. you know, if there's one narrative to have come from this, it's actually the how mainstream. These beliefs were that propelled people to go to the Capitol. Um, And a a year later, we can't even agree on what to call it. Is it an insurrection? Is it a siege? Is it a storming of the Capitol? Is it as some, you know, Trump supporters have said, a tour? Uh, Mm -hmm. There are, you know, moderate Republicans who are concerned about, you know, the direction this is going. On the right, though, I kind of see three sort of camps. I mean, there's the uh, deniers who are sort of oh it was the whole thing was exaggerated, you know. There's the what about people? You ask them about <laughs> what did you think about the scenes at the Capitol at that day, and they say well, the same thing I thought about when I saw Antifa and BLM, you know, burning down American cities. You know, they'll they'll immediately go into the what about-ism. Um and then. I sort, I guess sort of most disturbingly, you see this section of people who believe this was a legitimate protest and that it was the anger of quote-unquote patriots rising up against what they thought was a, believed was a stolen election and, and a whole host of other sort of conspiratorial ideas that go along with that. That last bit, that used to be kind of the domain of fringe groups, of the militia mm-hmm. groups, of the anti-government movement, of some of those types of figures. And now that's what we hear every night on Fox News. That's what we hear indeed from you know, members of Congress, and certainly from just sort of rank-and-file Americans, um, conservatives, um, who have swallowed these beliefs and promote them in their own ways on the, on the local level. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I would say it's been a really disorienting reporting experience in a way, because immediately oh. after January 6th, there was kind of a broad consensus that this was a terrible day, the violence was awful, and that everyone involved in the violence or the attack should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I mean, Donald Trump himself said that, I think, the day after.
0: The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent
1: our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. And we have when he was impeached, his, his attorneys said exactly that, that all the people who rioted that day, uh, you know, deserved to be punished. And then over the course of months and really by the summer of 2021, the narrative had completely shifted. Donald Trump was referring to Ashley Babbitt, the woman who was shot by police as a martyr. He recorded a birthday killed. video for her.
2: Today would have been her birthday.
0: Happy birthday, Ashley. Happy birthday, We're looking at you and you're looking down
1: on your family and on us. He has referred to the other people that day who stormed the Capitol as patriots. He says the real insurrection was on November 3rd, 2020, the election day when Joe Biden won. And so... Maybe I was naive, but I thought there was sort of a consensus, and we have completely lost that. I think Hannah is right about these three strains of this counter-narrative that you hear that has gone increasingly mainstream, and I've talked with people who were there that day who have themselves started to believe conspiracy theories about things that they saw with their own eyes. Um, So it's been a really disorienting experience. And I don't think there's, there's any consensus nationwide about this event. You know, maybe the broad middle sees it for what it was, an extremely violent attack that attempted to overturn the election. But a lot of people on the far right, do not believe that, including, you know, the leader of the Republican Party, effectively, Donald Trump. Yeah. So
0: then last question for you both. If the country is still polarized on what actually happened that day, if there's no real evidence yet that law enforcement has really changed and regrouped to do better should this happen again, and If we see more and more Americans becoming radicalized to try this again, potentially, should we be prepared to see more insurrection-type behavior in the future?
2: I think researchers, extremism trackers, have been... Warning now pretty steadily about the risk of political violence. We've seen polls coming out showing a growing number of Americans who are receptive to using force, to using political violence, to meet their political goals. We've seen, of course, the spread of disinformation. We hear things like, you know, only a fraction of Republicans will accept the 2024 election results. And those are all indicators that are disturbing to people who track national security threats. And, you know, one lesson is not seeing it as a uh, as a political horse race, who's up, who's down, who is this good for which party and really looking at it um, squarely as a national security threat.
0: Yeah. What I hear you both saying is America, buckle up. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, thank you both for covering this stuff so that we can know more about it. It is not a fun beat at all.
2: Thanks, Sam. Thank
0: you, Sam. <laughs> Listeners, come back to this podcast feed on Tuesday. For that episode on that day, I'll be talking with two journalists from the Atlantic all about where the GOP itself stands one year after the insurrection. Spoiler alert. It is still very much Trump's party. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Imagine buying a car the way you want online from the comfort of home, in person on the lot or a combination of both. CarMax lets you choose the way you buy. They'll even deliver your car right to your door in select markets. And no matter how you buy, CarMax has you covered with a 30-day money-back guarantee up to 1,500 miles. Learn more and start shopping at CarMax.com. CarMax. Car buying reimagined.
2: Support for NPR and the following message come from Yogi T. These days, self-care can feel like just another task on your never-ending to-do list. But finding time for yourself doesn't have to be complicated. In fact, it can be as simple as brewing yourself a cup of Yogi Honey Chai Turmeric Vitality Tea. Step away from the chaos of the day and support your well-being with this delicious blend of turmeric and warming chai spices. Support your well-being with Yogi Tea.
0: I'm going to ask you both uh, to take off your capital J journalism serious reporter <laughs> hats and uh, get loose and have some fun as we play my favorite game. It's called Who Said That?
2: Ooh, who said, it? It? We're who gonna said that?
0: We're going to pump up the fun <laughs> after that first segment.
2: <laughs> Palette cleanser. That's right.
0: A, a little palate cleanser. The game is quite simple. I share three quotes from the week of news, and you've got to tell me who said it. There are no buzzers. Just yell out who said it, and uh, you'll get a point. I'm really bad at keeping score, but it doesn't matter (laughs) because the winner gets nothing but bragging rights. All right, shall we?
1: Let's do it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Let's do it.
0: All right. Here's the first quote. I am an artist, not a COVID variant. Who said that?
2: Omarion? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Did y'all see this?
1: I just saw him. I didn't see yeah, it. Yeah, was, he was joking that it, like the last time this happened was Y2K because he was in B2K. <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Oh my God,
2: he's gotten it twice. He's gotten this oh, twice, got 20 years twice. apart.
0: So this quote comes from R&B singer Omarion. His name is spelled O-M-A-R-I-O-N. And as soon as the Omicron COVID variant uh, became ascendant, people began calling it, jokingly, the Omarion variant. <laughs> And finally, the artist himself, Omarion, has spoken about it. In a series of TikToks a few days ago, he said, one... I am an artist, not a variant. So please be aware, if
1: you just so happen to run into me on the street, you don't have to isolate for five days. Okay, so he has a sense of humor about it.
0: (laughs) He has a sense of humor, yes. He also said, (laughs) while it's important not to touch me and keep your distance cuz you know that's how it's supposed to be. <laughs> you don't need a negative test to dance to my music, all right? So, I you don't need a negative dance. test to dance to my music. He's a good sport about it. There you go. Got to get those Spotify streams back up. Well, honestly, so that last quote, he actually referenced two of his hits. One is called Touch, the other is called How It's Supposed to Be. So he knows what he's doing here.
2: Oh, that's, uh, yeah, they should adapt those for CDC guidelines. Is it clear to the point? Honestly, (laughs) don't touch. If Omarion
0: (laughs) was telling folks to get the booster shot, they might do it. They might do it. (laughs) Do either of you have a favorite Omarion or B2K song?
2: Now, Sam, I was just about to say, can you remind me of (laughs) of
1: (laughs) what they are? What was the song? Wasn't it like Bump, Bump, Bump? Wasn't that one of the big songs? Oh, yeah. I was going to say that one. So that was
0: a number one hit for B2K way back in the day. A little song called Bump, Bump, Bump. Uh, As the kids say, it still slaps. Who got that point? Hannah. Hannah, I think you got it.
2: Hey. Hannah got it. I'll take it.
0: Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Next quote. For this one, tell me what we're talking about. The quote is, an icon is laid to rest. Betty White? (laughs) Not Betty White. Oh. Although, bless her. Josephine Baker? We miss you, Betty. We love you. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, This was a... a device that was at one point...
1: Oh, oh BlackBerry.
2: Oh, BlackBerry, yeah.
0: Yes, yes, Tom gets that point. uh BlackBerry was officially kind of laid to rest today. Did y'all
1: see that news?
2: I did, yeah. I
1: never had a BlackBerry, so I never, like, was totally you know part of that cultural moment me neither i wanted a blackberry but was too broke (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that tiny keyboard i don't know how anyone used that on like a regular basis
0: oh i would give anything to have an actual keyboard again (laughs) and not like a glass screen
2: Yeah. I was living overseas at the time and kind of, you know, the BlackBerry came out and it was sort of something that you would see from abroad, like American pop culture. And I was Mm, like, they're all just mm -hmm. like staring at their phones and typing on these tiny little keyboards. But no, I never had one.
0: Yeah. So... The BlackBerry was known for years as the CrackBerry because it was so mm-hmm. addictive. Uh, it was one of the most popular cell phones of the 2000s, before, of course, Apple released the iPhone in 2007. And the BlackBerry was known uh, for that keyboard where you could touch the actual keys to type stuff. Um, at one point, according to CNN, BlackBerry had more than 80 million active users. Obama had one. I do fight really hard just to keep my blackberry. Kim Kardashian had one.
2: A blackberry, it's it's my heart and soul. Like I love it. I'll never get rid of it and
0: They were cool. And I recall people loved them because the messages on blackberries, the BBMs, they were like super encrypted. Oh. Hmm. Huh,
1: maybe we Remember should that? bring that back. I don't know.
0: Listen. <laughs> Who got that point, Tom? I think Tom. I got that one, yeah. All right. Um, this last quote is hilarious but I'm not sure either of you will get it (laughs) this one comes from a very popular reality TV show the quote is I hate him
2: Oh, that's Bachelor. The Bachelor. Yes! Yes! Mm-hmm.
0: Hannah, tell me where this comes what? from and what happened this week with that oh, quote.
2: I, I've heard tell that this is a popular reality <laughs> show.
1: Never would watch it myself.
2: <laughs> no, no, but friends tell me. No, yes, I watch that every every last minute of the, <laughs> mm-hmm. of the, of the latest one. That comes from a contestant on The Bachelor who... Uh, Did not have chemistry with The Bachelor and went on to tell everyone in the house about uh, how she didn't want to be with America's sweetheart anyway. And she could eat him up and spit him out, I think was the quote.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) this week was the season premiere of season 26 of the reality show The Bachelor. Uh, This year's Bachelor is Clayton Eckerd. He's a (laughs) 28-year-old NFL hopeful turned sales rep, according to The Cut. And you know how when they launch the show each season, all of the contestants vying for his love, they do like a speed round where they come and meet him and say hi and get Mm -hmm. first impressions. One of the contestants, Claire, a 28-year-old spray tanner from Virginia, (laughs) uh, said the following things about The Bachelor in just the first episode of the season. Here are the quotes that she said. One.
2: I would eat him and spit him out. Two. I can't be with, like... America sweetheart. Wait, what?
0: Then she said,
2: I'm too like fiery. Like, I don't need like a hi. I love America and I am a sweetheart.
0: And then finally she said,
2: I hate him. I don't know. Oh wow. <laughs> Sam, I love that you were, you thought, think so highly of me <laughs> that you thought, We wouldn't know that. When I'm like verbatim (laughs) quoting. (laughs) Clayton
1: Eckert, an NFL hopeful, is like a Bachelor contestant created in a lab. Like you could have. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The writers are really on point on that one. I just love
0: that like she didn't even try to fake it. You know, so much of these romance shows and like reality shows about finding love. You know, all of them are kind of just lying. Mm -hmm. She didn't lie. And honestly, kudos to her. Did you get kicked off? Or
1: did she stay? She,
2: oh, oh yeah, she did. Okay. But my favorite part was after they had their little disastrous, you know, meeting, she just kind of shrugs and <laughs> reaches for a chicken wing and takes a big bite. <laughs> nice.
0: <laughs> Hannah, you've watched this whole
2: show. Uh, oh, um, I mean... I think I read that somewhere.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No shame. Listen, no shame. As someone who watched 12 seasons of Grey's Anatomy in just a few months last year, there's no shame about anyone's TV choices. Watch what you watch. It's a tough world.
2: That's right. Hey, I I track extremists all day. I can watch The Bachelor. Yeah, (laughs)
1: you got to have a break. Yeah, you got to have a break. And now that Real Housewives Uh, of Salt Lake City has, like, actual... Indictments, you know, that's you know, Listen. my beats are colliding.
2: My can, beat and can we my, have nothing. Insurrection, have we you can't watched that? Nice. <laughs> uh,
0: on that note, I'm gonna ask my team to let me know who officially is the winner of this game. And Janae says, Hannah won. That's right. Congratulations! Yay, thank you. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations. Great work.
2: I'm gonna go play speech. some Mario. Speech, to speech. <laughs> yes. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, yes. Uh, Thank you both for being here, for playing a most fun edition of Who Said That? That's Hannah Alam and Tom Dreisbach. They both cover domestic extremism. Hannah for The Washington Post, Tom for NPR. Truly, thank you both for your very hard work on a very tough beat. I appreciate you both. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Coming up, we hear from you, dear listeners. You share with me the best things that have happened to you all week. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do.
1: Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi Sam, this is Jomini from Seattle, Washington. The best thing that happened to me all week is actually something that happened on December 30th. I had a long-awaited hip replacement surgery. So I'm looking forward to my pain-free, hippie new year of 2022. Hello, Sam. It is Zachary from Maryland. The best thing that happened to me this week is that I was offered and accepted my first full-time job since finishing grad school in May 2019. Since January 2019, I have submitted 645 applications, had 82 screening calls or first-round interviews, and received four offers all of which I accepted, but they were for part-time or temporary jobs or conditional offers based on the awarding of a contract. It has been hard on my family and friends to watch me struggle like this, and they will be relieved when they find out.
2: Hi Sam, this is Lori in Mountain View, California, and the best thing that happened to me this week was the removal of all the hardware in my mouth and bands that was keeping my jaw immobile and my mouth shut for five and a half weeks. Prior to that, I had a freak fall and a fracture and that was the treatment plan but now it is over and i can talk normally and i can blow out a candle and brush all my teeth and eat solid food so it is a good week hi sam it's ruth coleman i just got married on the 21st i just got a promotion on the 22nd and therefore it is my best week ever I can't wait to see what 2022 has on hold for me. And I love your show, and you are just so fun to listen to. Thank you so much. Happy New Year.
1: Thanks for everything you do, Sam.
2: Bye. Thank you, and goodbye.
0: Thanks again to all those listeners you heard there Ruth, Lori, Zachary, and Jomini. I gotta say, the best part of my week starts with uh, kind of a bad part of the last few weeks. It seems like a lot of my friends are getting COVID on the West Coast, on the East Coast. They're getting it. But you know what? The best part is none of them are being hospitalized and they all have pretty mild symptoms because of the vaccine. So that, again, is the best part of my week. And honestly, last year, the vaccine, the COVID vaccine. I am still very grateful for it. Listeners, don't forget, you can share the best part of your week at any time throughout any week. We still love to hear from you. Just record the sound of your voice onto your phone and send that voice memo to us via email, samsanders at npr.org. It's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week's episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali sastry Kurbachek, Andrea Gutierrez, and Liam McBain. Our intern is Nathan Pugh, and I got to pause right here and say, Nathan, thank you for everything. It has been such a joy having you around these last few weeks and months. You are a master of all things who said that, and you send a mean Secret Santa gift. You really do. We appreciate you and wish you the best wherever you end up, man. All right. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and our big boss is NPR's Senior VP of Programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.